Welcome to Season 2 of Connect to Capital, a podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm Samar Michaela, co-CEO at Scale Investors, and I will be your host. Our vision at Scale Investors is a world where gender does not limit access to capital, and we're on a mission to maximise returns by investing into Australia's best women-led startups. We know the transformational power of collaboration, and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education, and deep network to enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors. We believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We are thrilled to play our part in providing entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. And if you're keen to invest and maximise your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realise the significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au to learn more. And make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a minute. We, and by we, I mean my business partners, co-CEO Chelsea Newell and CIO Ruharas always say, if we could clone Phil Dolan, we would do it in a heartbeat. He is our number one advocate and supporter. Phil Dolan's list of credentials are akin to a super long list of credits at the end of a really great movie. He has played a multitude of roles over his illustrious career and is at the cutting edge of how the latest tech can permanently and fundamentally shift the ways of working. This is particularly evident in his current role as Executive Director of the Institute for the Future of Business at the University of Melbourne. Phil began his foray into academia after running the research team at Macquarie for 15 years an extremely prestigious role in the world of finance. He then transitioned into professor life, starting in the role of professor at Macquarie University. He completed his PhD from Stanford University under Bill Sharp, was the Dean at the University of Western Australia and adjunct professor at both Monash and La Trobe Universities. Phil talks to me about some of the extensive angel portfolio companies that are scale companies and why he invested in them. Phil is also a member of our inaugural investment committee for our new fund, the Scaling Women's Fund. We couldn't be more honoured to have him. I am sure you'll find this conversation as intriguing and insightful as I always find my conversations with Phil. Thank you, Phil, for being our number one fan and most loyal advocate. Carol would be so proud. Thanks so much, Phil, for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Let's start from the beginning. I'd love to hear about your background, your personal background, and, and how that's impacted your career to get you to where you are today. Well, I after I finished school, I went to university and studied two things. I studied mathematics because I was good at it and liked it, but I realized that was probably not going to get me a sort of permanent ongoing job. So I also did computer science, and that was much more, from an employment point of view, much more useful. So then I worked for an IT firm for a couple of years. So I've written code for a living, understand some of the issues around delivering on time and how things always take longer than you think they will when you're writing the big specs. But I, all the applications I ended up developing in that job were finance and business related, and I didn't know anything about finance at all. So I went back, was very fortunate to get a scholarship to do a full-time MBA degree in finance, specialising in finance. I did that and turned out I both liked and was good at finance. And some of my professors encouraged me to think about doing a PhD in the area. So again, very fortunate, got a scholarship, did a PhD in finance at Stanford, excellent university. Very fortunate while I was there, my PhD supervisor was Nobel Prize winner. So that was a terrific opportunity to work with someone who's world-class academic. 
I believe that was Mr. Sharp himself. Is that that's right? right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Bill Sharp. So uh, just for our listeners, in case they don't know, that is the gentleman that created the Sharp Ratio. Is that correct? Correct. That's right. In fact, he, Bill never calls it that. He He's very okay. modest, actually, and he calls it the reward to variability ratio, which is what he called it when he invented it. But it's so widely used and known now, everyone calls it the Sharp Ratio. Uh, so I'm still in touch with Bill. He's almost 90 years old, but still quite active and doing all kinds of interesting stuff, still writing books and speaking and on the board of a music festival and all sorts of stuff. So came back to Australia, worked for 13 years at Macquarie Bank in the investment management arm, which was relevant to what I'd done in my thesis. It was a great time to be at Macquarie, went through a huge growth phase when I was there. When I joined the bank, it had 600 employees. By the time I left, it was 6,000. Had a great time there, enjoyed it a lot. Towards the end of it, I started teaching part-time in Macquarie University's Master's in Finance degree, where they have a lot of practitioners come in from industry. That was good fun as well. Saw a lot of bright students while I was doing that, learned a lot myself, and then was offered the job running that program. So at full-time at the university, did that for six years. It's a big program, had 1,200 students. It was the largest Master's in Finance in the world back then. Enjoyed that a lot, but then was offered the job as Dean of the Business School at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Did that for about six years as well. Chance to live in another city, work in a different environment. Again, learned a lot, made some very good friends, particularly in the Perth business community. Learned a lot about the mining sector, the natural resources and so on, which are very big in WA. Then I moved to Melbourne about five years ago for family reasons, to be closer to my wife's family. And since then have done a number of academic sort of roles, acting pro vice chancellor at La Trobe University, done some teaching at Swinburne at La Trobe, did a big review of the business school at Monash University and so on. But about six months ago, I was offered the job setting up a new institute at the University of Melbourne, Institute for the Future of Business. Came along just at the right time for family reasons. Sadly, my wife had died from cancer at the end of 2021. And so I took all of 2022 off just sorting out her affairs and making sure I was around for my kids and so on. It's a very tough time. So I basically took that year out. And then this job offer came along about the time when I was thinking what I was going to do next in terms of full-time job. So I've been doing that for a while now. It's quite an interesting role. I get to look right across the university at who's doing what that might be relevant to outside parties, not just business, but government or the not-for-profit sector, and then basically pair them up. So it's a good role for someone like me who's sort of intellectually curious, has an interest in what universities are doing that might be relevant to industry. In my time at Macquarie Bank, I've sat on the other side of the table and been the person that universities approach for support from industry. The other thing I started to do when I moved to Melbourne was to start investing my own money in startups. And for reasons that we'll probably go on to, I prefer to invest in female-founded startups. How so, much do you think your wife has influenced that? Carol was very keen on it as well. And since she died, I've committed I'm to- I'm so sorry for your loss. I know it's, yeah. it was so difficult. Yeah, it was pretty tough. But yeah, we, we have a couple of daughters and have always encouraged them to not let anyone tell them they can't do anything they want to do. <laughs> Uh, and they both got, got interesting and careers they enjoy. Both got went to university, studied what they wanted to, and now work in jobs they enjoy. So, yeah, now Carol and I were very keen to invest in female startups. Carol herself was an actuary. She was one of the first female actuaries in Australia in what was then a very male-dominated profession. And so she appreciated giving women the kind of support they need to be competitive in what are often male traditionally male roles. 
So yeah, started investing in, and I do it through Scale, just because I think it's a good organisation. They know what they're doing. People running it very switched on, and so yeah, it was something Carol and I started doing together, and I will continue to do myself. And so that's how I got to where I am now. I mean, you are probably one of our most favourite advocates, and a recent um, addition to our investment committee for our new product, the Scaling Women's Fund, which we're really excited to have launched recently and really I mean I think your background that you've just articulated is just so perfect to have someone of your caliber on that committee really guiding us and we reach out to you a lot so I really appreciate that and thanks so much for taking us through everything and yeah again really just so sorry about Carol and the loss there I know that was a really tough time but you're doing some amazing things. I mean, just there's a clear, I think, thread in that in your background in terms of, you know, being really a pioneer in the kind of triangulation that lots of people talk about in terms of industry, private sector, capital and government almost sort of working together. How important do you think it is for people that have really honed a skill like you have being finance and investment to go back in and sort of circulate through the the academic circles in I think it's essential, actually. I think mm. I'm very fortunate in my time at Stanford to see what's probably the best place in the world when it comes to academic and industry interaction. If you look at the mm. way Stanford relates to Silicon Valley, the reason Silicon Valley is where it is is because of Stanford. You know, I grew up around the university mm. and their relationship is like that. They, so a lot of the senior academics, when they take sabbatical, they don't go to another university. They go to Apple or Google or Microsoft because they're all five minutes away, some of them literally across the street. And a lot of the good students end up going to work there. A lot of the Silicon Valley companies put money back into the university to fund research projects. One of them will be the next Google come out of Stanford. You don't know which one it'll be, obviously. <laughs> I think that the interaction between, and the government here in Australia is trying to encourage more of it through measuring impact of research and things like that, which I think is a good thing. So, yeah, I think that the universities have a lot to offer, but people in industry need to know the right questions to ask in some cases. And so roles like mine, which is kind of a liaison between the two, I think we'll see. This, as far as I know, this is the first, my role in this institute is the first of its kind in Australia, at least. But I think we're going to see more of it going forward. Yeah, I feel like it's going to be similar to being the biggest finance or postgrad degree like Macquarie was that you kind of really started pioneering. So, yeah, it sounds amazing and I'm sure it's going to be great. I know you've only been there a short time for now, but what is the most pleasurable part of, of your role so far and your work? Hanging around with smart people, seeing what they're doing, hearing the problems that they're tackling, bringing to bear real intellectual horsepower to address them. Good thing about my role is it's not just in business, but I get to look across the whole university. So, you know, that be medicine, science, IT, psychology, uh, a whole range of interesting things are happening across the university that are really relevant to companies. For example, every company in Australia now is really concerned about cybersecurity. And sheer yeah. size is not a defence. We saw that with, you know, Optus and so on. University's doing a lot of work around preventing cyber attacks, both hardware and software. So that's a really relevant area that's of interest to companies. A lot of work is being done around trying preventative medicine, for instance, trying to encourage people to take better care of their health. So stop smoking, or increasingly vaping, better exercise, better diet, things like that. The university has a center for behavior change. So it's doing a lot of work in that area about how you get the message out to people about healthier lifestyles and so on. That's got real implications for government funding and spending and the NDIS and so on. So there's a lot of interesting stuff being done across the university that I get to meet with the relevant people, look at it. 
think about how this might be applicable outside the university and then make sure people outside know about it and are happy to be involved and to support it. The other thing I really like doing is, and this is part of the reason I've done quite a lot of teaching over the years, I taught a course in creative problem solving for some years that I really enjoyed, is I like spending my time with smart young people. They're full of ideas, full of creative thinking. A lot of the companies that I've invested in, and, and I've got money, I think, in 18 startups, a lot of them are aimed to products or services that are aimed at younger people. I'm not really the target market for them. But to understand whether I think they are good investments is useful for me to be able to talk to people who are the target market. And yeah, not just my own kids, you know, in their twenties, but to talk to people who tell me what they think about things and you know, I learn a lot from them. So best part of my job is that I every day I learn lots of new things. I do think it's quite fascinating, like the and really important for there to be such a focus on health. It really is one part of your life that is a non-negotiable. I think if you if you don't have your health, then it really does impact every facet of your life. I couldn't agree more. I provided palliative care to Carol, my mm. wife, sicker and sicker, and all sorts of tried all sorts of treatments for her cancer, none of which worked, but mm. all had bad side effects. Actually, just seeing you know someone go through that was tough, and makes you realise that you shouldn't certainly shouldn't take your good health for granted if you've got it, and you should certainly be trying to do everything you can to maintain it as well. What is the most challenging part of your role or your work right now? Probably time management. I've got more things in a given day than I could do than I've got time to do them. So setting priorities is important. I try and be available to meet with people when I think I can help them. So I could easily fill my day up with just coffee meetings with <laughs> looking for advice. And sometimes it means you just got to say, no, sorry, I'm just not, not can't do it or can't do it now. So that's the the challenging part, I guess, is time management, always learning, always thinking of better ways to do things. So uh, happy to hear from other people who might be better at it than I am. Oh, I think we've got a question coming up about productivity hacks and (laughs) it's always a really tough question, isn't it? And I think you sort of already answered that in a way. Prioritisation has to be the thing that you use the most. And then there's obviously great tools and we certainly use our chat GPT quite a bit. And generally, AI, I mean, one, hopefully soon it will be able to um, just create an avatar of Phil so everyone can just tap into some advice from you. That would be amazing. (laughs) And I'm sure it's not too far off. So bring it back to kind of what we're doing here at Scale and what you particularly look for when you're making investments, if you could share that with Uh, Phil. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I'd look for the people who've got something they want me to invest in that they've identified a real problem. When I teach the creative problem solving course, I tell them that if you're trying to identify a problem, you need to ask why over and over again. So someone doesn't turn up for a court summons. Why? They didn't get it. Why? Because they don't have a fixed address. Why? Because they can't afford it. Why? Because they haven't got a job. Why? Because they've got problems they can't hold job down time. So unless you ask why four or five times and drill down, you're only addressing superficial issues. So I like if someone comes and says, I, I think I've got a good idea here, I'd like to know that they've really identified the problem that they're trying to solve. Assuming they've done that, then you need to know that, it, that their solution is viable. So do they understand that they have domain expertise? Do they understand the industry they're working in? Do they understand the key drivers? Do they understand why no one has tried to use their solution before? And there could be good reasons why not. So what have they seen that's kind of clever or different? 
then is it a viable solution? Is it something people will pay for? It's all kinds of problems you could solve that people can't think of a way to actually make money out of solving it for people. So it's got to stack up financially and it's got to be viable in the sense that it, there's also some sort of moat around it. So it might be a great idea and here's a good solution, but there's nothing to stop other people copying it. So do you have some protectable intellectual property or other sort of barrier to entry, essentially? And so if if they tick all those boxes, then you're happy to look at whatever they're proposing more closely. And then the terms of the investment, it's possible to have a perfectly good idea, perfectly good solution, perfectly good everything else. But the rate at which the founders are asking you to buy in is just not for attractive financially. They're asking you to pay a lot of money for not much share of the business. So it could be a very good company, but not a very good investment. And if all those things stack up, then certainly happy to look at it more closely, due diligence, and you've got to really be prepared to get your hands dirty in this kind of investing. It's very, very much driven by your own analysis. One of the reasons I like working with scale is a lot of the initial screening is done to make sure that by the time I get to see potential investment, it's got through a whole lot of those initial hurdles and has saved me a lot of time. I'd like to think so. So that's fantastic. Really, really interesting point that you make about an opportunity looking amazing and, and a potential business solving a real problem. I think we also really tend to find women solve real problems. So they're not just kind of making product for product's sake. Not that that's a bad thing, but we did an exercise recently where we looked at all of our portfolio companies, which we do regularly and sort of mapped them all to we could map every single one to at least like one to three SDG goals. So the UN SDG goals, which I find quite, it's just quite fascinating. And because there are sort of different lenses when it comes to what is impact investing and sort of how, you know, gender sort of fits into that. We totally agree. I think we've seen some great deals, great opportunities that just don't stack up from an investment terms perspective. So it's really important to, to look at those two in tandem. If there was a Rolodex for all the investors, venture investors in Australia, what would you want your entry to say about you so that we perfectly match you to the opportunities and founders that are presenting deals? I think if you, a founder was to come to me, what I would want to know is, have you got a good idea and can you deliver on it? You need both those. And maybe the idea will evolve through time. It may be that the delivery will evolve through time. I don't expect them to necessarily have answers to both those questions on day one. In fact, I'd be a bit suspicious if somebody said, here's a great idea, here's how I'm going to deliver on it, it's all going to work out fine, just give me your money. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, it would, would be so amazing as to be pretty much unbelievable, in fact. So, uh, in fact, one of the reasons I like investing in, prefer investing in female founders is I think there's a stereotype, but I reckon there's some truth to it, like a lot of stereotypes. I think female founders, relative to most men, they're more likely to know what they don't know in a given situation. They're certainly more likely to admit what they don't know in a given situation, more likely to surround themselves with people who plug the gaps in their own background and expertise. And this hurts them sometimes when it comes to raising money. I think they're more conservative with their financial projections. And when you do this really early stage investing, you know you're going to get surprises because you're coming in so early on. There's so much uncertainty about how things could go. So you know you're going to get surprises. I think with female investors, you tend to get more positive surprises. When the surprises come, they tend to be more positive ones. Women are more likely to under-promise and over-deliver. And in my experience, at least in the investments I've done, they will do whatever it takes to be successful. You know, They really do put the effort in. And as do men, male founders too. But I think 
on balance. I think it's an underappreciated sector. Women have at least 50% of the good ideas for new ideas and businesses. They get about 5% of the funding. That's just a gap in the market that needs to have something done about it. And so in terms of what the Rolodex might say about me is that Phil's always happy to listen, but he won't always say yes. I think uh, the, the next question I wanted to ask you sort of when it flows on from this, we often recommend that founders take investment from a values-aligned investor. Would you like to share your what are your values? Uh, yeah, well, I'd like to think that whatever the investment is, it's along some dimensions, it's making the world a better place. Now, if it's solving a, a, a real problem, that almost is a given. But the way in which it's solved matters as well. So you don't want to solve one problem in one area, but create another one in somewhere else, for example. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to know why you basically, ultimately, you're backing the founders, their values, their passion, their skill, and so on. And you want to know that they're doing it not just for the money. You don't expect them to be doing it for free, but you also want to know that they, and often I've some of the investments I've done, it's been because the person who came up with the idea has personally experienced the problem themselves. And sometimes it's a, a tough problem too. Yeah, they've seen how the system didn't work or didn't work the way it was supposed to. And they think we can do something about that. We can do it better. And we've having been through it personally, we understand what the issues are. And therefore, we've got some insight into what a better solution might involve. And so I think knowing why the person thought the business was a good idea, the new idea, the product, whatever, was a good idea. Um, so one of the things I don't do, and scale don't do it either, is I never invest in what I'd call kind of lifestyle businesses. Yeah, so someone comes along and says, I've got a great idea for a new restaurant. I'm a really good cook. Everyone tells me that. I want to start a restaurant that I want you to invest. I'd be saying, fantastic, I hope you're successful. I might even come and eat dinner there sometime, but I'm not going to put money into it. Or a boutique fashion place or whatever. Because those kind of things, they're not really scalable. And, and one of the things you look for when you're investing in a startup is that it is scalable. You want to know, is it going to, in, in five years' time, is it going to be 10 times as big or 20 or 30 times as big? And if there's not an easy way to see how that's going to happen, then I just don't invest. So the person, the person might be passionate, they might be really good at what they do, but if it's what I call kind of lifestyle business, and they're going to work hard, what's more, but if it's kind of a lifestyle business where they're doing it more because of what they think they personally will get out of doing it, then I typically wouldn't invest. Yep. There needs to be a, a pathway to exit and get a return, I guess. So, so those right. businesses typically don't, well, there's certainly not a clear pathway and I'm entirely great. I think it goes back to your point earlier where there is a real underserved market and a huge opportunity to invest and have those problems solved by people that are experiencing those problems. 51% of the population are well and truly kind of equipped to do that. So, yeah, agree. It's ripe for opportunity. Could you share some of your favourite investments with us? I was kind of like asking who your favourite child is. when you're yes. In fact, this one, I, the only reason it's when you ask that question, it's top of mind is because I recently invested again. Yeah, you know, I did follow on investment, so it's kind of relevant. Was Accent. It's essentially a breathalyzer for cows that tells you they're pregnant. And if you are breeding cattle, it turns out about 15 or so percent of cows, doesn't matter what you do to them, they just won't get pregnant. They don't. And the sooner you know that, the better. You don't want to keep spending money on feeding them or artificial insemination or whatever. And historically, the way it's worked is if you think your cow's pregnant, the vet comes, they do a blood test or they stick their hand in and feel around and tell you what's going on, but it's a vet that does it. good thing about accent is you don't need that. It's biological markers in the cow's breath that are quite accurate beyond a certain number of weeks, 
that will tell you, yes, your cow's pregnant or no, it's not. So that's a very, it's an interesting idea and it's getting quite a bit of traction. But the other thing is, and this came up in the most recent funding round, is that it that turns out these things are also very good at detecting the whether your cow is an above average methane emitter. And that could be quite relevant if concerns about greenhouse gases and so on and farmers start getting acid put on them around the methane emissions from their cows and are they justified and maybe you need really high value beef to justify a carbon tax applied to your cattle or whatever, uh, then knowing that would be quite important. And AgSent have been talking with NASA, whose satellite detection of emissions and so on is now really accurate to the point where they, you know, this paddock is putting out too much methane compared to that one and so on. So knowing how your cows, cows stack up on that dimension could be in quite valuable, actually, I can imagine. And the fact that AgSent are able to sort of preferred partner working with NASA on this is interesting for me. It's part of the reason I went into the follow-on round with the investment. So, yeah, it's when I think the underlying technology is clever. They've got patents and IP protection and stuff in place. I can imagine all kinds of other applications that might come off the back of this. I think they're working on sheep and goats in terms of other animals. Uh, you may remember, actually, that when they did the initial pitch to us, most of the people in the room were women and more than one asked whether there was a version for humans that breathalyzer for humans that tells you if they're pregnant and the founder said, no, not yet, maybe never. But I believe it is, we have, since we first invested, it's becoming more and more a reality, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, she well, said, well, yeah, well, well. humans are mammals and they're not that different to cows along some dimensions. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, you so, certainly feel like one when you're pregnant and then <laughs> take, when you've got take, a newborn. Take, I will take, take your word for it. I've never experienced that particular joy. Uh, uh, although I saw, saw, you know, have seen, obviously, Carol, my late wife, went through it. So, yeah, so that's just one company. But I think since security and Hack Hunter, with the focus on cybersecurity, I think have enormous potential. I think OHO is addressing a real gap in the market in terms of keeping track. Mm required, you know, legally required checks for people working with children and things like that, for example. So I think there's just every one of the investments I've done, I, I think has been well thought out, has done very well, some more so than others, but in, in all cases, it's still early days. Hmm. Uh, but yeah, I've been fortunate to have had the opportunity to get involved with a number of really smart women. Is there anything you would recommend to accelerate becoming a great venture investor? Yeah, I think curiosity. I think always wanting to, when one of the things I told my students at the age of 87, when he was right at the end of his life, but still very productive, Michelangelo carved into the base of one of the statues he was working on, the Latin words, ancora imparo, which is Latin for I'm still learning. And I think being prepared to understand an industry that you might not know a lot about, but you get the opportunity to learn from people who do, who know a lot, like in agriculture, for instance, that, that example I just gave, or medical technology, some of the companies I've invested in, things like Baymatob and so on. So uh, being prepared to learn, being prepared to share your insights, I think are pretty important, and reading widely in the area and understanding how venture capital investing differs from more traditional. When I worked at Macquarie Bank, we managed big institutional-sized portfolios for big traditional investors. So I've had to learn a lot by learning about a new sector. And if you're not prepared to put the time and effort in to do that, then you're probably better off staying out. You've shared a lot about your background and venture investing so far. 
Are you able to share a story about a failure or setback and what you learned from it? I'm not sure what called, well, would you call this a setback? I'll tell you a story. You can tell me what to think. When I went to work at Macquarie Bank, I'd been there a little while, and my PhD thesis was on how to measure the investment performance of big international investors. That was, that was my whole PhD thesis. And it was a 250-page thesis, so there was obviously a fair bit of detail in it. And after I'd been there a little while, quite a junior person in the office came to me with a question. And he said, I've got a question about measuring investment performance. I'm having to do something in my job. Can I ask you about it? And I was really busy and just had a lot going on. And I thought, and this guy seemed, he's very, quite junior, hadn't been in the bank very long time. And I was really tempted to say, look, just read this or, you know, here's a good book or whatever. Anyway, I thought, you know, people have helped me out a lot when I was my way through. And so I said, yeah, okay, let's talk about it. Anyway, the question he had was incredibly insightful in the point that he had picked up on. I would have bet my, I'd read well over 100 papers on this topic. You have to when you're on PhD thesis. I would have bet money I knew more about that topic than anyone else in Australia because I just studied it in so much detail under a Nobel Prize one. But the point he'd picked up on was one I had never seen before. It was really quite detailed. And so I, so it really got me interested. And it took me two or three days to work out. And in fact, I'm still not even convinced I got the right answer. But anyway, he and I sat down, we worked through it, we talked about it. We, I think, I think he went away happy. Well, he went away happy whether he had the right answer, I don't know. But, but the lesson I drew from that was you shouldn't make assumptions based on you know, the level that someone is in an organisation or how much you think they know about a topic or whatever. You can learn from everybody. And I found, particularly when I was doing the business school, sometimes some of the best insights got when I was trying to run the school came from some of the most junior people. So I used to make a point when we hired anyone new at the school, the school had you know, 150 staff or something, so people sort of come and go all the time. But I always, whenever we hired anybody new at the school, I would always, after they'd been there about three months, I'd take them for a coffee. And I just say, right, you've been here a while. Is there anything we do that surprises you, that, that you know, good or bad? Is there anything you had in, did in your previous organisation that we should be doing here? Is there anything we're doing here we should stop doing because, you know, it's a waste of time or doesn't work or whatever? So having fresh insights from people, and sometimes some of the best insights I got were from the most junior people. Uh, and I always made a point if, I had a, if there was a group of us working on an issue or discussing a problem or whatever, I would always make a point of going around the room and asking people what they thought. And you always start with the most junior person because if you start with the most senior person, like the dean, and I tell everyone what I think, everybody feels they've got to fall into line and you end up with groupthink. And so the lesson I learned from that, what I learned from it was sometimes the best ideas can come from anywhere in an organisation. And what you want to do is encourage structures and decision-making and so on that encourages that to happen. Another good advice I got once was if someone says something, and someone else is going to criticise what they said, before they're allowed to do that, they have to put in their own words what the other person said to show that they really understood the other person's point and they're therefore talking about the same issue, not the cross-purposes. Uh, that's an idea Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's long-term partner, insists on, that before you criticise someone else, you've got to be able to, in your own words, make their case, essentially. What yes. their, what's their point? And then if you've understood it well enough to do that, then you're in a position where you can criticise it. Oh, some great advice there. What's something that people would find out about you that would surprise them? I have a very, I read pretty widely and I have a very strong interest in art history. 
and in particular the intersection between technology. And so in my course when I used to teach it, I used to talk about things like the rise of self-portrait. Self-portraits really only took off around the year 1500 because they didn't have high enough quality mirrors prior to that. But then artists, we had the Medici, there was an intersection with economics that Florence and Venice became very rich due to silk trade and other reasons. The Medici and families like that all trying to outdo each other, so they hire these well-known artists, people like Michelangelo and so on. But self-portraits took off around the same time and because technology improved with mirrors. And so artists started, they're just going to paint anybody, they're going to paint themselves. And similarly, up until about 1860 or 70, if you were a portrait artist, the big skill you had to have was to paint the person exactly the way they look. That's what they're paying you for. And if you look at paintings done by Rembrandt in the 1600s, they are just incredibly well done. You, know, you can see the hair on every fur on their coat and stuff like this. But after about 1860, that skill actually wasn't as much in demand or as valuable because of photography. So if you wanted an exact representation of a person, just take a photo. But what that did do was free artists up then to, so it didn't have to look exactly like the person or the scene anymore. So you got Impressionism and Cubism and all these artists could experiment in all kinds of ways. One of the examples I use is a two portraits that, Self-portraits Picasso did. And one right at the start of his career when photography was still expensive and you know, it's, it looks exactly like a photo. It's a portrait of he's about 18. By the end of his life, you know, he's got two eyes on one side of his head and Picasso sort of painting really abstract because by then it didn't have to look like the person anymore. And so, yeah, I've got an interest in art history, understanding the intersection and more broad yeah, architecture, things like that as well. So um, just something I like to... Spend more, and it means when you visit galleries, you get more out of it because you've got some understanding. Yes. You know, what was the artist? What were they doing? What sort of cultural environment were they working in? What were they trying to achieve? What were the constraints they had, technological constraints at the time and so on? So I love reading books about famous art frauds, you know, where uh-huh. you know, yep. they turn up that, you know, claim that they were this and that and they're not. And just the technology to detect that is quite interesting, actually. So. Who is the person you admire most and has been the most influential role model in your life? I guess professionally, probably Bill Sharp. Yeah, it was a terrific opportunity to work with someone of his calibre academically, but he was just a genuinely nice human being as well. He was thoughtful. He was generous. He was, I remember when I started working with him, I needed to collect a whole lot of data to do my thesis. And it was going to come from all kinds of sources and some of it was part very, I, I needed people to be very forthcoming in terms of giving me the information I needed. And I knew what I wanted, but I wasn't clear how I was going to get all this. And I, I remember Bill saying to me, if you think it will help, mention my name. And so, you know, being able to ring up and say, look, I'm working on this project with Bill Sharp, you know, who's very well known in the industry, immediately opened doors for me. And then he was doing quite high-level consulting with big really big US super funds like CalPERS. And he'd written all this really production quality software to analyze the numbers and do all the results and stuff like that. He just gave it to me. He said, yeah, I, you know, don't waste your time writing all this, rewriting all this stuff. What I've done will do a job for you. Help yourself. Save me week, probably months of time, actually. So yeah, he was thoughtful. He was generous. He was always full of good ideas. Not much surprise you learn when you're at that level. And then I guess in terms of personal, my wife, Carol, was, I thought, a great role model to everyone, our kids in particular, but going through, you know, knowing you're terminally ill, but she never 
never let it get to them in some ways. But yeah, I've been fortunate to have, you know, I've learned a lot from students I've worked with over the years. So not necessarily role models, but I've learned a lot by just being around them and asking them what they do and why they do what they do. And so I think, think if you surround yourself with people who you can learn things from, both professionally or personally, then you're always improving. I mean, you are probably our, you on average send us maybe two to three articles or content or books or certainly share a lot of stories as well. So I'm really looking forward to hear your top recommendations of like two to three favorite books and podcasts and things that we could share with the audience in the show notes after this. Yeah, sure. Well, books I would recommend people ought to read. Well, I've read and I've got a lot out of anyway. There's one by Robert Cialdini called Persuasion. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's like The Psychology of Influence or something. It's called Persuasion. It's one of the best books I've ever read. Cialdini talks about how do people persuade other people to do things, to buy certain things, to give them a bigger tip if they're a waiter. What are the psychological tricks, as it were? And very from a research and academic point of view, it's all very solid research. But the, the real thing I really like about it is Cialdini has tried every one of these himself. Like he's worked as a waiter in a restaurant and you know, used the trick to try and get the bigger tips. Yeah, he's been a solicitor where you go and ask for money on the street from people, donations. He, every one of the things in the book that he writes about, he has done himself. And he writes about what he learned from it, whether the advice he got was good advice or not, and so on. So I, I would really strongly I'd recommend it to all my kids, just so you're aware of the psychological kind of levers that are being could be pulled on you to get you to do stuff. Doesn't mean you're always immune. He admits often he he's got suckered in by something, and and then he'll he'll write about it in the book. You'll say, you know, I I you know I literally wrote the book on this, and I even I got taken in. So that's what I'd recommend. Uh, another one I quite I read a while back that I quite like was just called Noise by Daniel Kahneman, who's again Nobel Prize winner, and and his colleagues. And Noise Kahneman defines noise as any situation where you give two people identical information and ask them to make a decision, and they make a different decision. So you show two doctors the same X-ray. One says operate, one doesn't. You give two judges a case where someone broke the law, one judge says three years in jail, the other one says five years in jail. And almost always, only one of those decisions is the right decision. They can't both be right in some sense. And so the first half of the book is full of examples of how noise can occur. They're just a couple. And then the second half of the book is how do you try and prevent it? And he's got some really good suggestions about how you stop noise creeping into your decision-making process, either as an individual or within a group. But my favourite example in the book is he talks about one of his colleagues who's a professor who's at a university where if you want to go to the university, you have to write an essay saying, why should should they admit you? And to be fair, this university... Every essay was read by two people. But what was happening was the first person would read the essay and write on the front what they thought, admit or don't admit this person, and then give it to the second person. And so the second person's not just getting the essay, they're getting what the first person thought. And Kahneman and his friends said, look, that's potentially influencing them in ways you don't. The whole reason you have two people is independent. Why don't you get the first person to write on the back what they thought and give it to the second person? And then when they read it, they're reading it kind of, from scratch. And the admission office said, oh, yeah, we used to do it that way, but we've got too many disagreements. Interesting. 
You said, well, what does that tell you about your whole process, right? Yeah, you get, you get mm. noise in the process somewhere. And then the, the other book, I fiction book I've read more than once and I'd recommend to anybody is Gulliver's Travels. Everyone thinks of it as kind of a kid's book and it certainly can be read by kids. Yeah. But it's just it's full of little insights into, as Gulliver sort of has all these weird adventures, little insights into human nature. So, for instance, just to give you one, when Gulliver... His ship gets wrecked and he washes up on the beach and the little people in Lilliput tie him down and eventually they let him go and so on. But they've never seen anything like him. You know, they call him the Man Mountain. You know, never seen anything like him before. But they go through his pockets and one of the things they find is his watch and they've never seen this before, anything like it before. And so they say to Gulliver, you know, what's this thing? And he explains to them that when the hand points at this point, I wake up in the morning and when it points at this point I get out of bed and when it points at this point I eat lunch and so yeah explains what happens they naturally assume that he doesn't own the watch the watch owns him he's a slave to time that the watch tells him what to do and the point you know that Jonathan Swift who wrote the book is trying to make is that you know our possession we think we own our possessions but if you're not careful you can become a slave to them absolutely I feel like we've just gotten the blinkest on all those three books so um people can Definitely choose your own adventure now. Thank you. Oh, and not... you asked about podcasts. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I quite like the rest is history. The rest is history. They have two historians, an ancient historian and a modern historian, and they're both quite entertaining, witty guys. And they pick something that's sort of topical and relevant that's happening at the moment, and then look: is there a parallel in history where you can learn from the past that's relevant today? So it was Richard Nixon like Julius Caesar and yeah, stuff like that. And they did one recently, I thought it was quite it was in the end of last year. And they were talking about how Alfred the Great was a great king of England, still called the Great, managed to fight off the Vikings and then ultimately did a deal with them and established a lot of schools, built a lot of churches, was very well regarded in around eight hundred AD. But he then his son and his grandson who followed him were also very good bedded down a lot of his reforms, made sure everything stayed on track and kept things running properly. And the point was that having one good leader can make a difference. But if you really want to make a difference, you need two or three good ones in a row. And they talked about examples of when this has happened. But then the modern historian just said, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss. What happens if you get three bad ones? And, and actually, I heard a separate podcast, but similar topic. They interviewed a guy who could trace his family's ownership of the family kind of estate and manor in England back to the Norman Conquest in 1066. The one family had been all the way through for almost a thousand years. And they said to this fellow, What do you attribute that to? That's incredible longevity. You, through that period, there's been wars and plagues and revolutions and everything. Still the same family. Why do you think that is? And he said, well, look, like every family, we've had issues. We've had times when the heir to the family fortune has been a drunk or a gambler or a philanderer, sometimes a flat-out idiot. He said, we've never had two in a row. He said, that's the, the big thing. He said, if you have one who kind of goes off the rails, but the next generation of, okay, and they're switched on, they can kind of sideline the person and get control back and sort things out. If you have two in a row, you kind of go like this and then like this. And then you've got it's very difficult to come back from. 
And only gets true of any organisation. You get bad leaders for whatever reason end up in the role. But if you can realise it early and do something about it, it's generally fixable. If you have two in a row, you've got a problem. Great advice. To wrap up our fantastic session today, Phil, leave us with what you are optimistic and excited about. I think the potential for technology to improve the world, not just in terms of health outcomes, but I think we're going to, we are going to see a lot in that area. But things like climate, some of the really big problems that the world is addressing, they're, they're big problems that won't be solved easily. But I have huge amount of faith in human ingenuity. It's one resource that never runs out. And so I think things that can be done to encourage that, and it doesn't just mean more people go to university, for example, but I think things that can be encouraged, human ingenuity, to tackle big problems. I have a lot of faith that smart there's smart people out there with good ideas. If they get the right backing and support, there are not that many problems that we were not going to overcome. So very optimistic about it. It's part of the reason I'm like investing my own money in the sorts of things that Scale does. And I would, anyone who's, who wants to help make the world a better place, I'd certainly encourage them to think about doing the same. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Phil, and can't wait to share your thoughts with our audience. Thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did. As an investment venture firm founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like we do. We believe that education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both investors and founders. You can find them on our website. And if you're keen to invest and maximize your returns into Australia's best women-led startups, we have the perfect product for you, the Scaling Women's Fund. This is our solution to realize the significant opportunity in an overlooked market. Get in touch today by emailing us at ceo at scaleinvestors.com.au and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you do not miss a minute.